You're now listening to the Real Estate CPA Podcast. Your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of the Real Estate CPA Podcast. We're joined here today with Kaylin Deaver, CPA, and we're going to be discussing operating agreements and specifically the tax components of those operating agreements and why it's important that you have your CPA involved while reviewing or while getting an operating agreement created, because it's not just about the legal aspects. There are some tax ramifications, some tax impacts that you're going to want to pay attention to while those are going on. Before we jump right into today's episode, I do want to remind everybody about our Tax Smart Real Estate Investor Group on Facebook. Uh, we have a ton of great conversations going on with real estate investors of all types, where we're helping people out with tax advice and, and answering questions as we can. And with the Biden tax changes in the pipeline, you're going to want to stay up to date on all those changes, and we'll be talking about it in that group. So you can find that group by going to facebook.com and searching for tax smart real estate investors. And you could join that way or go to facebook.com slash groups slash tax smart investors. And you can join that way as well. The link will be in the show notes, but for right now, we're going to dive right into today's episode. And Caitlin, thanks so much for taking time to come on the show today. Would you be able to give our listeners a little information on your background? Sure. Thanks, Tom. And uh, thanks for having me on the podcast today. Hi, everyone. As Tom mentioned, I'm a tax manager here at the Real Estate CPA. I specialize in large partnerships such as syndicates and funds. And our team serves clients with as few as five partners, but up to 800 partners in a partnership. And our funds can have up to $700 million in their fund, and they're still growing. Awesome. Awesome. So like mentioned, we're going to be discussing operating agreements. And I think the first thing we could do here today is kind of just get everybody on the same page with what an operating agreement is. So, Kaylin, would you be able to kind of talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So the operating agreement is really the legal backbone of your entity. It's full of legal jargon, but there's a few sections in there that are relied on heavily for tax purposes. And what type of entities uh, need an operating agreement? Everyone from a large partnership down to a small partnership, you know, a single member LLC and S Corp. Um, they're used to define an entity's purpose, the powers of the entity. So it's important to have that backbone in there so that when you form this partnership, you come to an agreement with all your partners that it, it just leaves no room for confusion when things are written down and it's signed on. Got it. Got it. You know, we're going to talk a little bit about how operating agreements apply to syndicates and funds in just a few minutes. But, you know, one of the questions we often get when people are starting off with a small partnership, maybe with some business associates or some friends or family members, uh, they always ask the questions, you know, do I need to have an operating agreement for that too? And uh, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, yeah. As you mentioned, it is something we see frequently. And my recommendation is to always have an operating agreement. You know, like I mentioned, it it just leaves no room for confusion. Um, things can go haywire, even with friends, uh, family, people you've known for all your life. And you don't want to ruin Christmas dinner with Aunt Susie not agreeing with the profit that she received from the property you own together. So um, ultimately, it can also help establish separateness of partners for liability and tax purposes. And the liability piece is especially important if you're forming an LLC. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, with 
while we do see what I'm about to mention a lot on syndicates and funds or large partnerships, um, we do see this sometimes on uh, smaller partnerships as well. But could you be able to discuss what are the different types of interest classes you have or you know, yeah, classes that you might have in an operating agreement or in a partnership? Yeah, so a, a lot of times in partnerships with friends and family, we don't see different types of interest classes. You know, we're only seeing two to five or six partners. But when you get into these larger partnerships, uh, especially when you're raising capital outside of friends and family, we'll see partnerships with one to three different classes of interest. And it's as simple as class A, class B, and so forth. So what we generally see is the general partners in one class and the limited partners in a separate class. And the operating agreement separates the powers of these two classes. So class B, let's call those the general partners, they'll be those actively participating in the day-to-day operations and making management decisions. Sometimes the general partners don't contribute capital either. So they're just providing the service of running the fund, organizing capital, acquiring properties. Typically we see class A and B split as a 70-30 between GPs and LPs or 80-20 where the LPs own 80%, the GPs will own 20%. And uh, Class A would contribute the capital. So your limited partners are typically the ones that contribute all or a majority of the capital. So how do these different classes affect the actual distributions or I guess, you know, for everybody out there who might not be an accountant, the actual cash flow and the distribution of the cash and the returns to the partners in the overall partnership? So we typically see two types of distributions. And uh, the first is a distribution of excess cash. It's throughout the life of the partnership. Um, The second is the distribution of any remaining funds when the partnership liquidates. Uh, Both of these items will be spelled out in the operating agreement. And it's really important as a GP to be very specific when you're forming this partnership. And it's also important as an LP to really know what's in the operating agreement and when you're entitled to this distribution of cash throughout the life of the partnership. And then at the end, uh, what you'll receive when the partnership liquidates. So, Throughout the life of the partnership, the distributions can be as simple as your 70-30 split, where any excess cash would be split 70% to the LPs, 30% to the GPs, or the agreements can be more complex and have provisions with a stated preferred return. You know, we see preferred returns pretty frequently here in uh, partnerships that deal with real estate. Um, We'll talk about preferred returns on another episode. We'll take a deeper dive into that. We see partnerships making distributions of excess cash as frequently as once a quarter or as intermittently as once a year. So with liquidating distributions, though, at the end of the partnership, we typically see the operating agreement spell this out in order by class. And so in tax terms, we would call this a waterfall allocation. And our reason for that is it reads exactly like a waterfall. First, you typically have a return of capital to class A or your limited partners, Second, you would pay any accrued preferred returns. Third, any accrued preferred returns paid to your GPs if uh, they're entitled to any preferred returns. And then fourth can be the final allocation of any remaining profits or just cash left over within the entity from selling assets. So this final allocation can also be a waterfall too, though, and it can go into multiple steps. Um, We've seen operating agreements state that Class A receives the first 8% of remaining profits, Class B receives the next 10%, 
and the waterfall just continues until all profits have been distributed. So there's really no right or wrong way to distribute cash throughout the life of the partnership or when liquidating. Um, partnerships are very flexible. Uh, you can really make it what you want it to be. So it's just important for, like I mentioned, GPs to really be clear. And so LPs know exactly what to expect. Before we go into the next question we have here, I do have a follow-up question on this. And that is, um, you know, we, we speak to a lot of different uh, syndicates and funds at various stages of their life cycle, if you will. And a lot of times you'll have people who come, you know, who just came out of a seminar or just getting started who want to have a conversation. You know, at what point would you say it makes sense to actually loop in a CPA to start reviewing the operating agreement? Is it when you're working with the attorney drafting the agreement? Is it when you have a property under contract? Is it when you acquired investors? Is there somewhere in between? Uh, You know, at what point would you say it makes sense to reach out to a CPA and have that conversation? I would say the earlier, the better for sure. You know, when you're thinking about starting a partnership, if you've done so before, you have a a little bit of experience and hopefully you have a strong backbone and example of what your operating agreement should look like. But if you're just starting from scratch, as soon as you're making connections with an attorney, I would start reaching out to a CPA. And the reason for that is attorneys focus heavily on the legal jargon. But to really quantify that and talk about the tax implications they're going to rely on the CPA to do that part. And we we speak with attorneys frequently. Um, I actually just spoke with an attorney last week and we were going back and forth on an operating agreement. And it came down to, we were referencing code sections. And so these things are complex. The tax code itself is complex um, and it takes multiple multiple eyes and brains to put together an operating agreement. So that was great. So a lot of stuff that you just mentioned, that's something that the sponsor or the general partner of the investment opportunity will be responsible for. But if we shift it over a little bit to the limited partnership side, aka the passive investor side, what are some things that limited partners should be looking for when they're reviewing an operating agreement uh, or making a decision perhaps to invest uh, with a certain sponsor or general partner? Sure. So I also just want to follow up on the previous question about when to loop in a CPA. And uh, from the LP side, you know, we really touched on from the GP side. So from the LP side, when to loop in a CPA, um, if this is your first deal, you're jumping into something, into a partnership, um, you know, you can reach out to your personal CPA or reach out to a CPA in that industry um, to really dissect what that operating agreement says. And I would do so before you sign it. And even if this is a deal that you're joining and you already have a relationship with these people or you're already in other deals with these sponsors and GPs, you know, every operating agreement is different, even among entities where we have essentially the family of entities. Uh, We've seen clients with 10 different partnerships and each operating agreement is different. And some of those investors in the partnerships are in multiple partnerships. So like I mentioned, it's just important to Really read that operating agreement as an LP investor, even if this is someone that you're familiar with or someone you've worked with in the past. So as an LP, when you're reading that operating agreement, just some things to look for. As we talked about the waterfall previously and the distribution of cash, it's important for limited partners to know when their original capital contribution will be returned. This could be a specific date. It could be four years after property is acquired. It could be once the fund reaches a certain internal rate of return, or it may just be when the property is sold, refinanced, the partnership terminates. There's just no right or wrong answer here. Partnerships are so flexible. It's whatever the general partners and the fund managers decide to put in that operating agreement. 
So we often see the return of capital come first in the priority of distributions. But this is one of the first things I would look for as a limited partner. This return of capital shows that investors have a priority stake in the partnership. Um, I'd also look to the operating agreement for any additional capital calls. So it's possible that additional funds are needed throughout the life of the partnership. And as an investor, you should know if and when you'll be responsible for contributing additional money. And if you don't have the capital to contribute at that time, you know, what happens then? Do they reach out to other limited partners? Um, do they bring on new additional limited partners? And if so, what does that do to your interest in the company? Um, we've seen operating agreements where they bring on additional partners and a vote isn't even needed beforehand. So the fund managers can just decide to raise additional capital externally, um, or at times it can be internal first and then external if needed. So that operating agreement is really going to spell out a lot of things about how your money is being used, when it's going to be returned to you, and what form, things along that matter. Makes a lot of sense. So because these things are so flexible um, and they can determine so much different, you know, how things are operated, that's why it's called an operating agreement. Uh, that's why it's so important to make sure that, you know, both you as an investor, um, you know, you as an investor, you have a very good understanding of what you're getting into. And that's why you might want to loop in your CPA or perhaps even sometimes if you're making a very large investment, your attorney, just to make sure that you understand everything that you're getting yourself into. But moving on, we're getting to something really interesting. And this is something that a lot of people ask us about from the small partnerships all the way up to the large syndicates and funds. And that is special allocation. So as we know, typically, you know, when you make an investment into a partnership, things are allocated on a pro rata basis based on your partnership interest. So for example, if me and Kaylin went and did a partnership, we went and bought a building, put up $10,000 each, we'd be 50-50 partners and presumably the profits and losses would be split 50-50. But oftentimes in partnerships, or maybe not even oftentimes, sometimes in partnerships, people want to allocate the profit and loss or various aspects of the profit and loss to a certain partner or partners for you know whatever reason that may be. So would you kind of be able to talk a little bit about what a special allocation is and how that works? Sure. So this is where things really get fun in partnerships and in operating agreements. And, you know, I mentioned a lot that operating agreements are different every single time one is written. There's a template there that your attorney is likely using, but there's no set way to do it. And so, again, one of the greatest aspects of a partnership is the flexibility offered in allocations. So code section 704 allows partnerships to make special allocations of income and loss. And then special allocations restructure the method in which your profits and losses are distributed to partners in a way that it doesn't correspond to the percentage interest in the partnership. And so, as Tom mentioned previously, you know, if we bought a building and we were 50-50, but all of a sudden, Tom decided that I, I was working a little harder in this partnership and he's going to let me take a little more of the bonus depreciation to offset some of my income for the year. We can do that as long as it's outlined in the operating agreement. So generally, special allocations are somewhat hidden in an operating agreement. And I don't think that's on purpose, but it's simply because legal jargon is difficult to dissect. There's a lot of info in the operating agreement. You know, I've seen operating agreements as short as three pages and as long as 100 plus pages. So not only that, but we frequently find special allocations outlined in sections separate from the profit and loss allocation section. 
So typically in an operating agreement, you will have one section dedicated solely to how profit and loss will be allocated. But we've seen special allocations outlined in the books and records section, multiple pages away from the profit and loss allocation section. We've seen special allocations outlined in the definition section at the very end of an operating agreement. And we've even seen memos attached to an operating agreement. Sometimes these memos are written at the same time as the operating agreement, and sometimes they're drafted afterwards and they're an amendment to the operating agreement. So I would say the special allocation that we come across the most or we're asked about the most is the allocation of bonus depreciation. So clients come to us and they purchase this property, they performed a cost segregation study, they have huge amounts of bonus depreciation to be taking in the first year. And while the bonus depreciation may be lumped in and allocated as your typical profit and loss for the year, it could be specially allocated and it could be done so primarily or solely to the general partners or to the limited partners. You know, we've seen it go both ways. As I mentioned before, you know, if Tom and I formed a partnership and I was performing more services than he was, I was acting as the general partner, um, he might allow me to have more of that bonus depreciation as a compensation for that. Or... As Tom being the limited partner, he contributed more capital than I did. And so maybe I allow him to take more of the bonus depreciation. So it can really go either way. Another type of special allocation we commonly see is the special allocation of profits in lieu of a preferred return or to compensate partners for their initial investment. Kind of like I was talking about with if Tom and I formed this partnership and he was the LP and he contributed more capital than I did and we allocated more bonus depreciation to him. Well, maybe Tom doesn't want more bonus depreciation because he doesn't want the loss. He actually wants income from this partnership. And so you can do that as well. So the profits type special allocation, we typically use it on a limited time basis, or that's how we typically see it until a partner has been made whole for their initial investment. I know I'm running long-winded here, Tom, but just one more disclaimer I really want to hit on in special allocations is the IRS generally applies greater scrutiny to special allocations because they stray from the profit and loss ratios outlined in the operating agreement. There are certain tests that a special allocation must meet in order to be recognized of having substantial economic effect and accepted by the IRS if a partnership were to ever be audited. And so one thing I just want to mention here is if you are making special allocations, it is extremely important to loop in a CPA and make sure that your allocations have this substantial economic effect. Absolutely. You know, when we get to special allocations, things certainly get a little bit more complicated and it may seem relatively straightforward. Like, why can't we just allocate this to me or to a different partner? But the reality of the situation is it can have some adverse tax consequences if not structured properly. And if you're not aware of everything that could happen as a result. So it's definitely something you're going to want to speak to your CPA about before putting any special allocations into the agreement again, so that you just understand what you're getting yourself into, because it's not always as straightforward as it may seem. So why should I as an investor or fund manager know what is explicitly stated in the operating agreement? So much to my surprise and a little bit of embarrassment on behalf of CPAs, I was recently in a training and it was estimated that less than 30% of CPAs can truly dissect an operating agreement and apply the tax implications according to Code Section 704. So this is not the first training that I've sat through where they talk about 704 being the most complex 
code section in the tax code. So to start with, considering that attorneys use templates and rely on CPAs to interpret and apply what the operating agreement contains, it's extremely easy for a partnership to have an operating agreement that doesn't match its intentions or it's misapplied at tax time. You know, it's important for investors and fund managers to work alongside their advisors when drafting an operating agreement, ask questions. If something stands out to you that you don't understand, you know, absolutely ask about that. If your LPs are asking you questions about what's in an operating agreement and you can't answer that, it's important to reach out to a CPA to really understand how it's going to be applied. So it's really important to truly clarify what's intended for the economic structure of your partnership so that there are no surprises at tax time. And then lastly, just working with knowledgeable CPAs that can really guide you and how the operating agreement are going to affect you and your partners at tax time. Absolutely. So as Kaylin mentioned, um, you know, it's important to loop in your CPAs when you're dealing with these operating agreements as they can be quite complex. But, you know, we work with a lot of different investors in, in various investment strategies and in various sizes. And uh, people often come to us before they're even talking to an attorney. And I, I and in my opinion, you know, I really think that uh, you want to get a CPA involved, you know, when you're first getting those that attorney involved drafting the, the operating agreement, as Kaylin said, but not before, because simply put, there's not much we can help you with it when it comes to an operating agreement specifically before that point in time. So this is something you're interested in working with us with our team. Kaylin is the expert in operating agreements, um, and we will be able to help you. And if you want to learn more about that, you can learn more about it by uh, going to therealestatecpa.com and filling out a become a client form, and we can have a conversation at that point in time. Before we wrap up for today, Kaylin, is there anything else you'd want to share with our audience about operating agreements? Yeah, thanks, Tom. Um, just briefly, I just wanted to say thanks for having me on. It's an honor to work alongside you and Brandon, and I really appreciate you taking the time to really educate our listeners about operating agreements because I think it's something that we see frequently. You know, we we bring on clients and. They either ask for help beforehand, which is great, or, you know, we onboard a client who's had a partnership for five or 10 years and they're getting ready to liquidate. And they realize at the last second when we've taken them on that their operating agreement hasn't been applied correctly. And so that K-1 at the end of the day, it doesn't really reflect the partnership, so to say. And so their investors and themselves also receive this surprise at tax time when the partnership liquidates. And so it's really important to have a good footing to start with and really kick that partnership off in the right way. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I want to thank you again for coming, taking the time to come on. We will probably have you back on, I'm sure, in the near future to discuss preferred returns. That's a big topic for investors out there uh, who want to understand uh, how that works. So thanks again for coming on. And uh, until next time. Have you heard about the Multifamily Investor Nation Summit coming up this June 10th through the 12th? It's a three-day information-packed virtual event for multifamily investors with over 1,000 attendees and over 50 speakers. You will hear from experts on finding deals, raising capital, underwriting strategies, selecting markets, and so much more. I have also been invited back to present on tax strategies for multifamily investors. To grab your tickets, head on over to www.apartmentevent.com and use promo code THOMAS to get $100 off. Whether you're a seasoned vet or just getting started, this is an event that you won't want to miss. Again, join me at the Multifamily Investor Nation Summit by visiting www.apartmentevent.com today. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. 
We are always taking on new clients and with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes and with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.